Hey everyone, it's John Kerwin here and I'm really excited as this is my podcast called Open Minded. This podcast is interviewing inspirational people from all walks of life. You know, I want to give you the real stuff that's happening every day in the minds of these leaders, how they stay well in high pressure roles, how they build resilience in themselves, how they look after their people and how can you invest in yourself and your people to do mental well-being well. So this is JK, and this is Open Minded. So let's go. Hi, everyone. In this episode, I sat down with Jazz Thornton. She's a mental health activist, author, director, speaker, and co-founder of Mental Health Clarity Voices of Hope, and a finalist for Young New Zealander of the Year 2021. Jazz has dedicated her life to spreading hope and creating change in the mental health space. Having survived a long-time battle with mental illness herself, Jazz covers off her own journey, the tools she uses under pressure, well-being in our younger generations and so much more. So wherever you are, dial in and enjoy. People, just a little heads up that this podcast episode touches on themes of childhood abuse, suicide and mental distress. So please, listener discretion is advised. Stay well, my people. Good morning, everyone. I'm incredibly excited about this. I know some of you will be listening, some of you might be watching, but I've got a, um, a freshly brewed cup of coffee because I've been looking forward to this discussion for a long time. I'm with Janice Thornton, who is an absolutely amazing woman. I, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself um, before we jump into this, because I was uh, clinically depressed. I had uh, suicidal ideation but never planned my own suicide but I really didn't have any any excuses which was really really hard um, good upbringing um, nothing really happened in my childhood and that was a real tough thing for me um, just because I didn't have any excuses and you know if I talk to you about um, you know jazz overcome childhood sexual abuse depression multiple suicide attempts bullying um, just your backstory, Jazz, just gives me tingles because you had every excuse not to be here, but here you are. Um, you know, you've created Voices of Hope. Uh, you, 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 you made Jessica's Tree, which was a story a little bit controversial at the time, and we'll go, in, we'll, we'll go into that as well because you, you punched us all in the face with suicide, um, which is what we all needed. Um, author of Stop Surviving and Start Thriving, um, documentaries, Girl on the Bridge, co-wrote My Journey Starts Here. I mean, I just got, I mean, I, I can just keep going and I know you're working on a, on a project at the moment, but I guess my first question was, um, was there a moment where you just thought, I can't be a victim anymore and consider suicide? And, and, and when is that moment and how do you, verbalize it I guess I think um for me personally there there was quite a, a moment that I identify as the moment that um I decided to start fighting back and it was um me and the psychiatric unit that I had been in for about two months I think at this point um and I remember just sitting in this room bawling my eyes out and this woman comes in who's known me for many years and she basically sits down looks at me and goes jazz why are you crying and i looked at her and i was like oh, i'm just so tired of fighting and she just looked at me and said jazz what do you think the definition of fighting is because i don't think that you've actually been fighting i think you've only been surviving and it's only when you learn how to fight that's when the change that you're longing to see is going to happen and i remember sitting there and kind of being a little bit offended being like i've been fighting this whole time how dare you say i haven't but um i remember going back to my psych ward room and looking at the definitions of surviving and fighting on google and the definition of surviving is to continue to live or exist in hardship manage to keep going in difficult circumstances um and i realized that for the last you know, nine years of my life that I had been battling with, with mental illness and with in and out of hospitals and in and out of psych wards consistently that I really had just accepted that this is the way that things will always be. Therefore, I just survived through it. Um, whereas the definition of fighting is to engage in a battle or war, fight to overcome and destroy an adversity. Uh, so that moment for me was when I was like, I, I, I need to learn how to do this. I need to learn how to fight. And the process went from there. 
I think I think um, the the thing that intrigues me about that is you know when I do my talks, people ask me to explain it, and I say, well, I was fighting this thing in my head, and it was so tiring. A minute felt like an hour, an hour felt like a day, and a day felt like a week. So I was so exhausted um, by the end of one day that. Um, like physically, mentally, just you, you can't explain how it is. I talk about making peace with it, or I I tell people, don't stop fighting. Um, don't know. How do I say it? I say, uh, never give up, but stop fighting it. Give you, accept how you are. I mean, was there an acceptance? And, and you had a multiple of things in your background. So did you have to go through those systematically and make peace? When do you go from, um, and I don't know if victim's the right word, so tell me if I'm wrong. So when do you go from victim to actually, I'm going to be the, the, the superhero here, which you, which you are, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's an absolute process. And one that I think um, I've only properly been walking the last few years. Um, I, I remember about two years ago when I was filming The Girl on the Bridge, they got me to get my um, child protection files and my hospital files. And I remember sitting there with them and there's like 2000 pages in these things. And I'm reading um, my hospital files first, which is, you know, just filled with stories and attempts and self-harm and just my behavior and all these things. And I remember reading these and just being like, oh my gosh, I... I hate the girl that I'm reading about. I hate the things that she did. And um, I just, I'm just sitting on this, this lounge room floor, just bawling my eyes out, looking through these. But then I read my child protection files and I began to read about the three-year-old girl who was, um, you know, had gone from happy and bubbly to dull and lacking emotion. And the girl who was being sexually abused and was being silenced. And I think in that moment, I, I had a lot more grace for the teenager because I understood why she was like that. Um, I understood why I was responding like this and why I was behaving like this. And I think that the process of me going from kind of this victim mentality into doing what I do now was the process of trying to find what was stolen from me at a three-year-old, which was the happy, bubbly, joyful, outgoing kid um, that disappeared when I was three. So for me, it was the, I, I mean, I stayed a victim um, and I stayed in that victim mentality whilst I was still stripped of that. And whilst my identity was in the things that were done to me or spoken over me or things that I did. Um, and it started to shift when I began to, um, I guess, forgive the teenager um, and forgive the people that had hurt me, which was another process in itself, um, but then forgive myself. Um, but that was, I think, probably the biggest part of the journey. How, how do, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine to describe how you actually forgive someone that's harmed you either mentally or physically, but is it true? Because I've read a lot of stuff about you and I've read a lot of stuff about, um, you know, guys in prison uh, and, and there's a real forgiveness. I mean, is it is it real or are you just forgiving yourself or how, how does that process work? Because if, if, if you and I wanted to go and talk to that 13 year old, that was you, how do you, how do you explain that to someone? Cause uh, for me, if it was me, I'd probably want to kill someone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think that um, what someone once said to me that forgiveness wasn't about letting the other person away with it, but forgiveness was about um, cutting off the, the poisonous part that is still attached from the bitterness that I held. And I think that, for me, forgiveness is something I know that I have I have definitely um, done now, but I have not done it for them at all. There's not a single part of me that has forgiven them for their own sake. I've forgiven them because for so long I was using what they did as an excuse to keep going with the behavior that I was doing. I was using what they did to me uh, to shape my mentality, to shape my core beliefs, to shape everything that I thought about me. And so... Um, I had to, for me, it was, you know, and I don't think everyone has to forgive the people that abused them um, and, and hurt them like that. But, you know, me being able to kind of physically cut that tie and go, I'm not even going to think about you anymore. You don't even get space in my mind. Um, I don't know what led you to do this, but I forgive you and I'm going to move on with my life. They don't know that I forgive them and I'll never tell them. Um, but it just means that I live with a lot more freedom. One of the things that is difficult to to live with every single day so you've gone from victim 
and you probably wouldn't call yourself this, but I can call you so I can call you this, you know, a hero to people who have been in a situation like you. So tell me, how do you deal with that pressure as well? I mean, all the stuff that you've done over the last few years now makes you the face of this. How do you actually go from victim to superhero to actually, I also need to look after myself a wee bit, otherwise I'm going to go back there. Yeah, that's that's been the big learning journey over the last few years. Um, and for a very long time, I wasn't good at dealing with that um, because, you know, my my story kind of came out quite fast. Um, and then we were doing things like, uh, you know, with Voices of Hope and with Jessica's Tree and all of these things were ramping up. And I kind of suddenly found myself in this position where because I'm young um, and I was being open with my story, all the other young people that were struggling began contacting me. Um, and there was this massive weight of responsibility where it got to the point that I was spending every single night in the hospital with people I didn't know, um, just trying to ensure that they could get the help that they needed. I was on my phone 24 seven, like it was ridiculous. And there's this um, moment actually in the girl on the bridge when they were filming all of this stuff going on where um, I'm sitting down with people and my phone is just going ding, 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 ding. And they were like, you, Jazz, you can't live like this. You can't be everyone's savior. And I realized that um, there was a part of me at the start that was just living with this, you know, savior mentality of I have to save everyone now because I felt guilty almost that I was still here and that I was feeling happy and I knew people were still struggling. So I had to do everything I possibly could to help every single individual. Um, but then a good friend of mine sat me down and she said, Jazz, you have grace to be able to create projects and initiatives and things that can impact the hundreds of thousands. And you can spend time doing that, or you can spend hours and nights upon nights upon nights with individuals at the hospital. But at the moment, if you keep doing both, it is going to destroy you. So you have to, you have to pick one. And I was like, I'm not going to pick one. I want to do both. Like I can't be doing all of this and then not be spending the nights. And she said, jazz, don't you see how you doing both is going to destroy you. You're not a counselor. There are people who are trained to be frontline. There are people who are trained to do the one-on-one -on -one conversations. You're good at creating the content and being the voice at being able to, you know, raise the awareness and do the things. And that was the conversation I think I really need because it gave me the, um, I want to say permission to be able to, um, you know, not look at my DMs all the time on online. And it gave me the permission to turn my phone off and to look after myself and to prioritize my own well-being, which I didn't do for the first probably like three years of this. Um, but it's something I've learned is so important now. <laughs> One of the things that frustrates me the most, absolutely, Jess, absolutely annoys me, but I don't know the answer and you would be way more informed than me. So we're not allowed to use the word suicide. You know, we're not allowed to talk about this stuff in case something happens. And I know, you know, Jessica's tree was something that was incredibly emotional for you and you took it on head on so how how do we actually start i mean you, you look in the newspaper man they won't even mention it you know i mean what would you do if you're the minister of health what what would you approach to stop our horrible suicide rates doing you know putting it in the cupboard is not helping is it no, listen to those with lived experience is the biggest thing. I think that, you know, everyone, all the professionals that are usually of the older generation are coming out with things like, um, you know, there's, there's, we know that there's so much risk in talking about suicide. And I always ask the question back, well, what's the risk in not talking about it? Because obviously not talking about it, our suicide statistics have continued to rise. They've continued to escalate here in our country. So your tactic's not working. And as someone who was sitting in a psych ward once who was just desperate to know that someone else had gone through this, that this was something that I wasn't alone with and I wasn't the only person dealing with. I know for a fact that if we were talking about this, back when I was 12 years old, I probably would have asked for help a heck of a lot sooner rather than waiting because I didn't know that this was something normal. Um, and also not talking about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and avoiding the problem is, you know, they, they prefer to kind of, you know, sweep it under the carpet. And the amount of conversations I've been in with 
government and with politicians and ministries of um you know people trying to hide statistics or trying to you know cover up what is being said when it's people are what i love is that people are getting louder now yeah. and if they're not going to talk we will thanks to you i mean we talk about the suicide rates but we don't actually talk about the attempted right so yesterday in australia eight suicide eight attempts but i guess my question is uh, you're now Minister of Health. I'm making you Minister of Health, so congratulations. Uh, you're in charge of mental health. What would you say or what messages would you give your 13-year-old self? How can we communicate with them as a government, right? I know that you, you're you doing your stuff, and if you connected with someone, you're going to save their lives. But how can we do this on a scale that is actually going to get through? On a scale that is actually going to get through, I think that, um, I don't know if you, I mean, you all know this, that in our country, it's not mandatory that every single school has a counsellor um, and that every single school has counsellors that are able to um, see every student. Mental health wasn't talked about. I did maybe one class, I think, in my entirety of high school that was about mental health. It needs to be in the curriculum. It needs to be something that is accessible from a young age. And it also needs to be something in which we focus in on early intervention. Because at the moment, the way that our whole uh, system is structured here in New Zealand is that unless you are wealthy or you are dying, there is no help for you. And so our teenagers, you ask any of them who have bad, you know, who have maybe ended up in the hospital from mental health, they have been taught this, this idea and the system that the only way that I'm going to be able to access any help is if I escalate my behavior and then maybe they might know that I'm struggling. And that's why we see so many attempted suicides as well, because that's what we're being taught. Um, and so being able to, you know, that's why I think having school counselors be absolutely mandatory for every single school from primary to high school in New Zealand is the easiest step and the first step as well as the curriculum to have that early intervention. So I believe I, it's an illness, not a weakness. This is, this is what I talk about with my depression. Um, you know, my depression took away my self-esteem, my self-confidence and my enjoyment in life. And life's not that crash hot when you got those three things. Um, so how does a frightened 13-year-old girl that you were crying suicide attempts um, go from filmmaker to writer, um, you know, to, to, to voices of hope? I mean, how do you go from um, suicide to creativity how do you get that confidence back how do we encourage our youngsters to be confident in what they're good at I think that um, what I love is that looking back at my life that creativity was always there but it was just always dulled and it was always um, you know being used in the wrong way I talk often now about um, most of my really great ideas have come just impulsively like 2 a.m um, and as a teenager I you know a lot of my impulses and these impulsive things that I had would be the things that would be leading me to be feeling something and then immediately be trying to take my own life or immediately be trying to do these things where so that kind of um, sudden like oh burst of idea has always been there but now I've learned how to enhance that and use it for good and I think that um, you know the biggest thing that has enabled me to do that is um, I have never once lost sight of my why um, which is you know looking back at everything that I wish that I had as a teenager, um, everything that would have enabled me to know that hope was real and change is possible. And so, you know, the books and the movie and the, and the directing and the storytelling for me is just tools to be able to ensure that there is not a single young person on this planet that doesn't know that hope is real and change is possible, that doesn't know um, that they are not alone. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it was, you know, impulsive emails sent at 3 a.m. that resulted in, you know, the books behind me or um, things like that. But um, yeah, I also just surrounded myself with the most incredible people, which helps a lot. So for these for these young people who might be struggling, and, and I think the hardest thing for me to deal with is that's on the increase. And I'm not necessarily talking about possibly to the extent of suicide, but like the, our kids are just struggling with a view of what, um, you know, and I say this wrong, I'm middle-class white, right? So um, I can't connect with everyone, but it seems to me that 
uh, like I used to say, you know, my goal was to buy a Morris van, you know, like a, a shitty old car. Um, whereas the expectations on our youth today, how do you how do you get our youngsters not to have so many expectations and just follow what they love? I think that speaking actually to the older generation here, the amount of young people that will come to me and will say, um, you know, that they've said that they're struggling with something and their parents will say, what do you, you've got no reason to feel like that. What do you mean? Look at this life that I've created for you. If only you knew, you know, we've had it worse or, and they, they're constantly um, invalidating young people's experiences. And so I think that I, I actually couldn't tell you how many times I've had that exact conversation with young people. And so I think that if we want to see our young people be able to thrive and be able to feel like they have permission to both feel things, but also go and explore the world and, and do the things that they want to do um, as a, you know, as people your age um, and, and older, the people that are, we're kind of looking to for wisdom and for advice, stop discrediting the stuff that we're going through um, and, and invalidating it. And that way young people will feel like they have the permission to speak up one, when things first start getting hard, but also enabling them to find things that they love doing. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the interesting things for me is I think I was a generation behind my father, right? So he knew that I was going to smoke behind the bike shed you know, get into his whiskey cabinet when he was away, drive his car when I shouldn't. Um, and so I think it was relatively, not easy, but it was easier for him to parent and understand my world. But I feel five generations away from, um, you know, from the life that you live, right? And so how, what, what's your advice to a parent like me dealing with a youngster? Because you know, you can't just say, oh, you're broken up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you'll get over it. I've been through it. So how, how do we do that? Because there's no books for this. We're not, we can't cope with, you know, um, for us, connections, meeting the boys at the pub or going to a rugby club or, you know, um, but connection for you people is different. How do we parent that? Because we're obviously getting it wrong often. I think that um, one of the biggest things is those kind of earlier conversations and um kind of creating space to teach young people how to go through the emotions and problem solve because there's a there was a study that was done a while ago that said um, people from kind of just kind of at the lower end of millennial through to Gen Z are literally missing a, a um, pathway in their brain that everyone else has where it comes to problem solving when you had to do something in school if you knew the answer for it you'd have to go to the library find the thing find the book, write it out. Like there was this process that you had to go through to find the answer. Whereas now we just have Google, everything's on Google and we we've actually don't have the same pathway that you have. Whereas if we can't see a solution immediately or we can't feel something immediately, we literally don't know what to do because we don't have that process of, okay, actually we need to go to the library. We need to find the book. We need to do the, you know, that there's this process that takes work. And so I think you know, that, that's a lot of guidance that you can give um, young people who are struggling if they're in, you know, just had a breakup um, is to be able to go, okay, well, why, why are you feeling like this? Or what can we actually do to help you feel better? And I think asking the questions that are more validating than being like, oh, get over it, you'll be okay, um, is, is a lot more beneficial for them to also learn how to deal with these things as well. It was really interesting because I read a book um, called Learned Optimism, which is an which was an educational book. I read it for my coaching, but it actually made me a better parent because what I realized was I didn't know world they were living in. So instead of me trying to come up with answers, which I didn't know, it was better off me asking a question because at the end of the day, we were both learning, you know, we're both sort of understanding. So how do you deal now with everyday um, stress and pressure? I mean, you've done a TED talk that you've been commended by the queen. You've met, Harry and Megan. So, you know, before before you before you're doing the TED talk, what are some of your tools to keep yourself from not freaking out and making a dick of yourself? <laughs> and, <laughs> you uh, know, because that's our fears, yeah. right? 
yeah. we've got that in it. We've got that in a mind where we think, oh shit, I hope I don't mess this up and make you know yeah. mess it up. You're about to mince, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, <laughs> Black Adder um, or Rowan Atkinson, where he actually headbutts the Queen. You know, but those thoughts go through our mind, don't they? So, how, what, what yeah. are your tools before you walk on for a TED talk or meet, you know, Prince Harry and 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 uh, and Megan? How do you do that now? Um, I think block breathing is my my best friend when it comes to that. Um, my my, you know, I I have ADHD, so my mind races a million miles an hour, um, and so I, I have to stop before I do anything like that and box breathe and just you know spend time doing that, um, and then bring myself back to okay, Jazz, this isn't about me. Remember your why. Remember your purpose, and I'll just keep saying that over and over and over again. Remember your why. Remember your why, and it kind of helps it be like this this isn't about me it's okay you're not going to fall on your face and if you do that's fine it's not about you um but yeah box breathing is good um and I also you know have to ensure that the night before I do things like sleep um and turn off my phone and do everything I can to take away extra stimulation um so that I can be the absolute best that I can possibly be when given these opportunities ADHD I mean um I don't know if I've you know, I'm on the dyslexic scale. I believe you're also, um, I'm really lucky that I can read and stuff, but I'm definitely on the dyslexic scale, probably minor. Um, ADHD is also something that's really interesting because I think what the fear that I have is being labeled. So with some of these labels that you've been given, how do you actually go once again from actually victim to say, actually, this is cool. If I understand my brain, I've got so much within this so-called illness that is great because often we deal with the, you know, with the bad side of something, right? Yeah, I, I actually just did a, um, a post about this yesterday. I think it was the first time that I publicly told everyone that I had ADHD, but um, I only just got officially diagnosed with it last year. And the psychologist, psychiatrist, sorry, who diagnosed me was like, how would you gone so long without knowing this, like without getting diagnosed? What the heck? And I was like, I don't know. Um, and what I kind of realized was that, you know, there are so many, you know, uh, battles with ADHD, like starting a million things and never finishing any of them and losing everything. And I often just thought that I was just a really bad person with really bad focus and I would be really hard on myself. Um, and then kind of the more that I looked into it while I realized that's most definitely an aspect of ADHD, um, ADHD is also my superpower. And the reason I think it is what enabled me to have the career that I have today the all of the ideas that I've had that have gone super well or have been milestones in my career have happened at like 2am when my mind is racing when I've started all these things and they say ADHDs are some of the most creative people on the planet like we think in a way that other people don't think um, and so for me it is now learning how to manage the negative side of it and you know having to not overcommit and look at calendars and do the things and I actually take medication um, as well to help me focus um, but then also being like oh this is the thing that enables me to be who I am and I'm successful because of it so I love it. <laughs> that is that is so awesome and I think that's something in this country that we need to start flipping on its head because you know how did you feel though when it was diagnosed did it scare you did you go oh shit you know like uh, or no, it was actually a relief it was it was me going oh my gosh this actually makes so much sense this isn't just um I remember saying it to my friend of going I just thought that this was just a part of my bad personality but it turns out it's a disorder um <laughs> it was, you know so I, I I was relieved to be like oh my gosh this is actually why I struggle with this. It's not just because I am terrible with time management and I'm bad with all these things and I'm hyperactive or I'm da 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 da. This is actually just something that comes with the label. And I think maybe if I had had the label a lot earlier on, it would have freaked me out because I've had labels before that have absolutely freaked me out. Um, but this one, I was like, oh, sweet. Now I know how I can manage the other side of it because there are techniques that I can do to stop doing these things. And I know why I'm so so creative so it didn't freak me out and I think that message is so important Jazz because you know when you call it a disorder I go well who's in charge of saying what's normal you know 
And part of the problem with our country and with the world at the moment is we go, oh yeah, no, it's not normal. ADHD is not normal, but actually it's your normal. It's my, it's my normal. It's, it's our normal. So that's normal. So who, who, who is, I always say, you know, God or, or Allah or whoever you believe in is going to judge at the end of the day, but what is normal? I think we've got to get a right, get away from these, you know, these, these, sort of labels but i also think that the greatest thing that you said during that is you had an understanding of it mm. once you have an understanding and this is what i said about my um my depression when when my psychiatrist told me the science behind it i go oh shit i'm normal wow you know i'm yes. not a freak of nature <laughs> no no, and I, th I love that you've said that, that we, you know, that this is our normal, this is what we know, and um, it's the exact same thing, you know, as an example, something not mental health related, but um, I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine in America, and she went, oh my gosh, Jazz, like, I wish I had an accent like you, I just speak normal, and I stopped her, and I was like, have you made yourself the main character to the point that you think that you don't have an accent? You don't have an accent because that's all that you know. To me, you have an accent, but I don't have an accent. To me, it's the same thing, right? Like your normal is not going to be the same as someone else's normal. And when it comes to things, especially, you know, like ADHD, a lot of the biggest businesses and entertainment and movies and things that have come are from people with ADHD. So yeah, everyone's normal is different. And I don't think there is such thing as normal. <laughs> How, how um, you know, we, we've spoken about your past. We're now talking about ADHD, you know, you and I, dyslexia. Um, is there any, how do you deal with the self-pity like, bloody hell, why me? You know, how do you, does it ever enter your mind and how do you deal with that negativity saying, well, actually, this is a, this is a, this is me. I need to love me, you know, stop pitying yourself. Because sometimes you do, eh? you go, bloody, why me? Again, another thing? Shit. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, all the time. Um, there's, you know, when I'm around um, my friends who have extremely loving families or come from wealth or have security, I'm often, you know, in this position where I sit there and I would go, and I've actually said this to my co-founder before, because we come from very different backgrounds where I was like, I would, I would give up all of this in a heartbeat to be able to have just one aspect of your life. Um, and I find, I catch myself often on that going, you know, why couldn't I just have had one of these things? Or why does all of this have to have happened? Like, I, why did I have to live like this? Why did I not have the childhood everyone else had or the security everyone else had? Or, you know, it just felt like it was hit after hit after hit after hit. Um, and, you know, even now I sometimes struggle with, man, I just, I just wish I had a normal life. But then, then I look at it and I hear the stories of people who have experienced just one aspect of it being able to feel like they're not alone. And um, I love, you know, the the saying of, um, you know, that, that God doesn't give you more than what you can handle. Um, and while that is something that can be confusing and overwhelming, I now know, you know, there are people who will come to me who have been through childhood abuse, but maybe haven't been through being labeled with borderline personality disorder or people that have been bullied, but haven't been abused. And so for me, having such a wide range of spectrum of things that have happened, yeah is yeah. what enables me to do what I do and what enables me to reach so many people and ensure that no matter what it is that you're mm -hmm. facing, that there is an aspect of my story that can show you there is hope. And, and I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I think we underestimate bullying as something so crushing. Um, so now I've taken you from Minister of Health and Mental Health to Minister of Education. <laughs> so congratulations, you're now Thank Minister you. of well, two portfolios. <laughs> uh, but what would, you, what would you do in the school place to actually, is it, the other day I was thinking this, and I don't know if it's a good or bad thing to think, is bullying just a human trait that we're never going to get rid of, or are there things that we can actually do um, to fix this? I think that as long as there is hurt in the world, there will be people that are going to be bullies. Um, and I think that bullying is something that absolutely and utterly destroyed me because it is something that um, 
you know, is uh, these people are shaping your character and some of the most critical parts of and learning parts and developing parts of your life. And you're being told all of these things that it's not just something that bounces off easily, but it actually shapes who you are and how you respond and what you believe about yourself. And um, I think that uh, you know, when it comes to understanding what's going on in schools and being willing to to talk about it, I think that there's a couple of different approaches that that need to happen, and that is, you know, programs that are um, addressing and supporting those who are victims of bullying to fit, to know that they can um, get help, to know that you know, it's the the thing of um, what was it sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. I hate that saying so much. Um, because that's not true. And so enabling, you know, like enabling people who are victims of bullying to be able to speak up, um, which is bringing in things like um, there's a, an amazing school tour. I don't, don't know if you've heard of them called the Revolution Tour. Um, and they basically go around, they've been doing it for 10 years. And it's this massive hope filled um, thing that they bring into schools every year. And it addresses bullying. It's amazing. Um, but also setting in things for people who are the bullies and not necessarily just you know, intense punishment, but actually that's where having counselors in school is really important because one of the kids who made my primary school life an absolute living hell was horrendous to me, so mean, um, contacted me not too long ago and she said, Jazz, like, I just have to say that I'm so sorry. I know that I was like horrible to you and I'm now learning your story. What you don't know is that I was actually just put into SIFS care. Um, my dad had just gone to jail and my mum just walked away one night and never came home. And so I didn't know how to deal with that pain so I was coming into school and I was taking it out on you. And wow. so, you know, it's not just me that needed help in that time. It was also her. It was the person doing the bullying. And so that's why I said at the start, as long as there is hurt in the world, people are going to respond like that. But it's enabling these people to know that bullying is not their identity and that there are other ways to cope with that because we can strengthen victims and we can strengthen and put support around them. Um, but we also need to enable these people to know how to change the way that they respond and also know that it's not the way that they have to respond are you a millennial yes awesome i love you guys i think you are going to drive the the future of the of the world to a better place and i'm incredibly excited because i'm a co-founder of mentor and you're a voice of mentor and i know we've been talking about bullying in the schoolyard and stuff but i got asked a question the other day which was an amazing question and i want to ask you this question how do we normalize and get awareness of mental health stop the bullying and actually bring our real selves to work in the new zealand australian worldwide workplace where it's ignored i think that one of the easiest um, and first things that we can do is to reframe the structure in which we learned how to do relationship when it comes to work, when it comes to every aspect of our life, but especially work where you walk in, you see someone, hey, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Move on. We, you literally don't know what to do if anyone else says anything different. That's the formula that we know. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Um, and I think that being able to, especially for employers, being able to create the space to actually, you know, extend out those conversations and find out how their employees are actually doing and having things um, in place. Like I, I can't remember what it's called, but a lot of businesses have um, kind of like counselors available within their corporates and things like that, which I think is, is super important um, because there's this fear that we constantly see of people that are struggling while they're at work, that if anyone knows, then their employer is gonna think bad of them or their employer is gonna reduce their hours or people are gonna say this or people are gonna say that. But, um, you know, it's the same thing if someone's dealing with a, a physical condition, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and I think taking the advice that you give your own kids. You know? Are you putting your mental health first now? Yes, most definitely. <laughs> Okay, because that, that, that's what I say the secret to people is talking about the workplace It needs to go on the agenda, we need to take our real selves to work. Mm. And I say to people, I look after my mental health first, because it makes me a better husband, better workmate, better friend. Yeah. So I've got a, a few questions for you. You know that at Mentimere, we talk about the, the six pillars. And if you do those every day, it keeps you well, I call it my daily mental health plan. So how do you chill? I chill by watching Netflix shows. <laughs> 
Cool. Should we feel guilty about that or not? No, I don't think so. I think if you're doing it excessively every single day, then shift it up a bit, but it's what I do. <laughs> nice. How do you enjoy? Um, I enjoy by surrounding myself with people who make me laugh. Cool, yes. <laughs> Connection, and this is something, so you've got a millennial, you've got a middle-aged white guy talking, so um, we, we can cover a, a couple of things here. Um, how do you connect and what are the components of connection for you that are important? I am a very, I, I'm very intentional about face-to-face -face connection. Um, for a millennial living my life online and on my phone, it is so important for me to um, set coffee dates with friends. And I will do this with a friend every single week. There has got to be something set in um, or else I get overwhelmed with just doing work things and my relationships get missed. Um, and so I'll usually coffee and walk coffee and walk at the same time or just sit down in a cafe um, is something that is is really important for me and my own mental well-being of just hanging out with people otherwise I'm only talking to people about work or if I need something which is not a good way to live <laughs> that, that's just prompted another question that I'm really interested in how do I parent you around you being on your phone connecting that way and what that looks like how do I being you know a little bit out of touch, not say, get off the bloody phone, Jazz. You should, you're always on the phone. <laughs> you know, how do I actually parent that healthy connection between what you guys use a lot, which is, you know, all the social platforms versus that physical connection? I think that initiating things to do together. Um, so for you, you know, being like, come out for a surf or come do this thing with me um, is, is a good way to do it rather than just telling them off and be like, get off it because they're not going to. Um, but also I think a really important thing for parents to remember is monkey see, monkey do, that you might not be connected to your phone, but a lot of you are connected to your emails on your laptops and are working at home. And so they've seen you doing the same thing. And so if you're telling them to get off their phone, then you got to shut down the laptop as well. Um, and, but I think, you know, join, join things, whether it is going out for a walk or doing something together is a lot easier to get me off my phone than it is you just telling me to go do something. I'm going to steal that monkey see monkey do. Is that all right? Yeah, That's go awesome. for it. <laughs> nice. Nice. How do you celebrate? How do I celebrate? Oh, with friends always. Just, uh, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually very bad at celebrating. Um, it's something that has always been has been a, a big, a difficult thing for me to accept to do, um, and a journey that I'm still on. Um, but I have now learned that when there are milestones that need to be celebrated or should be celebrated, um, to bring in the closest people around me. What do you do um, when we talk about do? At, for example, during COVID, I took up the guitar. Um, I'm terrible, but it's good for my monkey brain. You know, it's good for that active brain. So what do you do uh, to improve yourself, learn, get better? Um, I try to upskill in a in a uh, particular hobby or something like that. Um, I try to change it up every month. Um, so during COVID, I learned to cook for the first time. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, I couldn't cook before that. Thanks, HelloFresh. I was able to teach me because I wouldn't know what I'm doing. Um, but things like that were um, picking up reading again, um, learning to surf, you know, which is what I did over the summer, learn to ski. Um, so things like that is what I do. No, we'll have to go surfing together. So how what what do you how do you move? What do you do for your your physical side? And this is this is a message I want to give to people. Life is about extremes at the moment. We don't know whether we should eat a cow or just eat the vegetable garden or be paleo or sulio or whatever it is. Um, and it's the same with with um, physical thing. All the images we see of of um, keeping physically fit, everyone's got a six pack, everyone's got everything in the right places and it's just not true. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about move it meant to me, it's what you're doing to actually keep yourself physically moving to keep yourself well. Um, I do two things. So I'll either, um, you know, when I talk about earlier, the connected side of it, of doing coffee and a walk, I'll, I'll do a lot of like just long walks with my friends um, in the parks and stuff. But then I also do kind of like the 30 minute a high intensity boxing class at the gym um, often as well. And that's for me is just kind of like a, 
um, I only do it because I know that physically doing something like that um, is something that helps clear my mind. Um, and so I can't do the big long ones that, you know, what you've talked about, people with six packs. Um, for me, if I can get out and I can punch something in a, in a boxing class, I'm um, sweet. <laughs> Yeah, that good bit of form though. Joseph Parker would have been proud of that. Beautiful. And I'm not going to take you on. I'm out. Um, <laughs> in your career so far, what are you most proud of? Oh man. Um there was a moment. And about two weeks ago, I was speaking at a festival um, in Hamilton and there was, you know, hundreds of teenage girls that were lining up to talk to me. And um, I, I started hugging this one and then I looked up and I saw her mother and her mother was just bawling her eyes out. And I went over to the mom and I was like, hi, I'm Jazz. And her mom just looks at me and she said, um, "You, I just need you to know my daughter would not be alive if it wasn't for you. Um, she has tried to take her life so many times and we, I thought that we just weren't going to see her again. She was in a psych ward and I bought her Stop Surviving, Start Fighting. Um, and everything that you wrote in that related to her, she started fighting and she has not tried to take her life since. And she's just bawling her eyes out. I'm going to get emotional mm. now. Yeah, I'm getting emotional too. So that's good <laughs> um, though. That's good. And for me, you know, that that moment, um, I was like, I think that was my most proudest moment was, you know, I, I hear a lot of teenagers often will say, you saved my life. And it's the most amazing thing to hear. But seeing a parent, and, and seeing, you know, the fact that this girl has is, is learned her worth and has learned to fight, um, I, I, I would give, I don't care about any of these things, any of the awards, yeah. any of the show, I could not care less. That moment, oh. That That's the biggest award ever, yeah, yeah, I agree. Who should I interview next? Ooh, um, ooh. I reckon you should interview a guy called Zachary, who is a amazing mental health activist in Australia, um, oh. who is also in med school at the moment. So he is trying to also change the way that frontline um, med and doctors and everyone both look after their own mental health, but also respond to mental health. Zachary, I'm on to him. Yes. What would you recommend from a book or from a show point of view? I've got one right under my laptop that I need to, this. The ruthless elimination of hurry is destroying me at the moment. Yes. But it's so good. Yeah. Uh, and the whole thing is basically talking about um, how we have like humans literally created the, um, the concept of time because for so long it was just, you know, you worked sun up till sundown and that was it. And then we decided to extend it. And we put these things in place and it's just how to slow your life down and enjoy the moments and, um, you know, things like sitting in traffic and the anger that you feel in traffic. And it just, it hits all these little things that are like, ah, um, yeah. So highly recommend that. <laughs> if you could make all the workplaces in the world do one thing to help their people's mental well-being, what would it be? Is it real cheesy for me to say, get me to Mia? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can say that. You can say that for sure. I, I just think it's the best thing. I think that, um, and this is not me as, as, the, as a voice of Mentimedia. This is like legitimately looking at this thing going, man, if I had this when I started my first corporate job, this would have been really helpful um, to be able to have this kind of tool. And I think, you know, if, it, if it's not that investing into some form of well-being program um, is, is so necessary. It's as important as your, you know, team bonding or things that staff parties that you put on. Yeah. And what about same question, but around bullying, what would you sell the leaders in this world to, to do about bullying in the workplace? I think. Um, oh, there's so much I want to say. I can't. Um, I think that the biggest thing is to ensure that that companies are in investing in the time and the space for people to be able to talk, um, but also lead by example. Mm. I think some of the biggest bullies are politicians and the governments and the people that are making the the laws and the rules. Like, 
yeah. we see you guys doing the same thing and it gives permission for everyone else in workplaces to also do it. Um, but yeah, for every organization and company, you've got to be investing in the well-being of your people. What's next? I don't actually know if I can say it. <laughs> well, don't say it, but there's something exciting. Yes, there is actually quite a lot of super exciting things um, that I, you know, my ADHD brain decided to pull everything together and work on a whole lot of different things, um, which I love doing. There's some massive changes happening this year. Um, what I can say is that my focus is now going from uh, both both our country, New Zealand will always be my priority, but very much now looking at mental health as a whole globally um, and and what we can do, you know, this is, this is not a one country issue, this is a global issue and how we can um, address and target both everyone from uh, those that are politicians and leaders and that are funding care for mental health um, right through to the, the lived experience. So I'm now starting to, to look at that. Shake those cages, Jazz. You're awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I feel incredibly proud that you're one of our voices of Mentimia. I love your work. You nearly made me cry when you talked about that mother because I know how that feels. So thank you for your time and let's go surfing. Yes, thank you for surfing. Thank you so much. And actually, really, really quickly, John, thank thank you for, for what you do. You were one of, I think, the first in our country um, to, to speak up in the way that you do. And I know for a fact that there are thousands of teenagers that have their dads here today because you chose to speak up, um, who realized that they could ask for help, who realized it was normal and didn't choose to let it get the best of them. And so my generation is extremely thankful to you because of you, we have our parents still. So thank you. Yeah, look, and I think, Jazz, the exciting thing for me is that, um, you know, I'm middle age now and I've got kids and that sort of stuff. And I think you and I chatting, you helping me and my generation be better parents to, to, to parent mental health the right way. You know, my personal goal is that we have the best suicide rates in the developed world, not the worst. So let's just keep working together. It's been a real pleasure. Um, we're signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Minded. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe. This podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts, so make sure you do that. <laughs> I don't need to tell you how, and then you'll get my new episode straight away. And if you can leave a review, tell everyone you know about it, it'd be awesome. If you could help spread the word about the show, thanks. But also, I'd love to get your feedback. You know, I'm new to this, I wanna get better, and I wanna know what you wanna know about mental well-being. So, Please reach out to us and thanks and I'll see you all soon.